1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. The reason I'm just doing two verses is starting with the Greek and looking at the concepts, I realize there are some important concepts that are often misunderstood or even, yes, misused in the history of Christianity. And we want to understand what God has said and thereby understand how Christian preachers, and in this case, the apostles and uh, their co-workers in that day, should be understood as faithful stewards uh, for Christ. I'll read the text while we're on this slide from the Christian Standard Bible. A person should think of this, think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us have wisdom and understanding that we may see what you've said, how it applies, and how we can be faithful and understand your callings in a way that would bring honor and glory to your name. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have, I'm going to do the first half of verse 1. A person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ. Now, there's two words in the Greek here for servants, and then the the one we'll do on the next slide, household managers. Okay, servants and managers, or servants and stewards. In the context, I'll quickly read that. We covered the last time I preached, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. It says, let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So the context is that whoever is a valid leader raised up by God, they are there for the benefit of the body of Christ And we don't need to have a certain person we can claim as our preacher, leader, apostle, whoever, with some special secret in order to have special status with God. Everything is yours. I preached on that a few weeks ago. So in that context, Paul continues in chapter 4, a person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ. So even those who were the apostles in the New Testament, Apollos, who wasn't apostle in the sense that Paul was, are people appointed by Christ to serve and to bring honor and glory to him. Now, this first word is a translation of a word that would denote subordinates under another's direction. In the etymology of the word huperetes, it denotes... uh, like an underroar in the the older version of the Greek language before. That's not what it means here, but we can see what it would mean in context if we see the etymology. So you have this boat with different rowers. Someone is saying, now, now, now. So the underroar is serving. In this case, these are ones who are serving Christ, who's the head of the church. 
Now, this very same word is used in Luke 1, 2 and Acts 26, 16. I'll read Luke 1, 2, and then I'll probably read a few more verses in the context of Acts 26, 16, if you want to turn to that. Why is that important? I've noticed as teaching through Luke, Acts, and now 1 Corinthians, there's many important terms that are in common with those three books of the Bible. And that shouldn't surprise us because Luke was a traveling companion of Paul at times in Acts, and we see the same terminology. So I'll read Luke 1, 2. It says, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So those who witnessed the worst of Christ, his resurrection, his death, burial, resurrection, his appearing to the witnesses, his bodily ascension in Paul, as we'll see when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, as one born out of time, also was a witness. So Luke is saying that the things that he wrote were handed down by those who were servants. And they're about the mighty deeds of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. Now, in Acts 26, 16, I want to read through 18 where Paul, at the very end of Luke Acts, to volume work by the same author, he is testifying before Agrippa. And he's telling how he became a witness, how Christ appeared to him, and what Christ told him, the resurrected Christ. After, by the way, the ascension. Acts 26, 16. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. Here's our word, huperetes, uh, under roar, a servant. Paul was appointed by Jesus Christ himself as an apostle and a servant. So when he says, think of us as servants, he's referring to serving Christ, the head of the church. Appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from the people, from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. This is Jesus speaking to Paul as he recounts to Agrippa to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Paul told this king, that's what happened. He was appointed as a servant. I sort of like the idea of the under rower. He's doing what he was called and appointed to do by Christ. And we're told to think of those like Paul, Paulus, Cephas, anyone God appoints in his church as those who are serving Christ. One of the things that damages Christian ministry over the many, many centuries, yes, millennia of church history, 
is getting this wrong. We begin to think that we're important, God needs us, we're better than everybody else, or pick out our favorite group or leader and not think about Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church. Think of logizomai in the original means to regard or consider. So when we think of someone serving God, we should think of them not as some great glorious person, some great man of God, but someone appointed as a servant of Christ, including the apostles. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that much of what's happened in church history has been a very bad thing. Because now we have levels of bishops and archbishops and hyper this and that, people creating massive structures as testimonies to their own importance. That's not the point of Christian ministry. So let's talk about these stewards as of the mysteries of God, the second part of the verse. Here I use a different translation because it's just as valid a translation. I'll explain why. And managers of the mysteries of God. Think of the irony of that. First of all, we need to know what the mysteries of God are. If something is truly mysterious and not fully known, how can you manage it? That seems rather strange, doesn't it? So if we understand what the mysteries of God are, then we can understand what stewardship or management, that Greek word there on the slide, um, oikonomos, means household or estate manager. The term shows up in Luke, some of the parables of Jesus. I'll tell you about that later. So the mysteries of God are the revelation of the gospel. A mystery is something that would not be known were it not revealed by God. Pagan mysteries are always mysterious. Pagan mysteries require a lot of money just to get to the higher level where you get to learn the secret of the God. Many occult groups, Scientology, where they have getting clear, I believe, the various pagan mystery cults that existed in the first century when Paul wrote this, had their secrets. And only certain people, eventually, if they did the right thing, got in on the secret. The mystery of God is used to denote that which we wouldn't even know had God not chosen to reveal it. But he has. And revealed the mystery of God is not mysterious. It's what God is doing in Christ. It's about salvation, the gospel, that God is saving Jews and Gentiles who believe in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, and making them, according to Ephesians 2.15, one new man. And so Paul, as one born out of time, to whom Jesus revealed himself, 
is one who is such a manager of the mystery mysteries of God. So let me cite a couple of verses. By the way, to save space, 2-7 means chapter 2 and verse 7 in the book we're studying, which is 1 Corinthians. I'll read that to you. We preached on it a while back. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. What is that mystery? It's the gospel. It's not a secret. Now, it would be had God not revealed it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him, and what he calls us to do in response. Let me cite Ephesians 6.19. Paul said, and also for me, that this is asking for prayer, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So every time the gospel is preached, the preacher is declaring, if done so biblically, the mystery of God. Christ is reconciling sinners to himself. Christ, who came into our world and did many mighty works and called people to believe in him. I have a statement that I wrote on my notes. The mystery of which Paul speaks is the truth that God is using Christ crucified, a scandal to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles to save those who believe. And we've covered this, 1 Corinthians 1. God uses the foolishness, ironically, of the message preached, and so on. You see in Acts 17, when Paul spoke to the philosophers, the pagan philosophers in Athens. Many sneered at him. So you're going to preach about the resurrection of the dead. That's in Acts 17, 30-32. For sake of time, I won't cite it now. But it says at the end of his speech, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. We don't believe in that. Why would God raise a dead body Some of the philosophers thought the body was a bad thing. The spirit realm was good. The body's bad. But actually, Paul preached that he furnished proof and will bring judgment to those who don't believe. So the mystery of God is what is a stewardship given to Paul, Paul's, Peter, and the other preachers. And we are to understand it as the gospel, not a secret that you have to pay to find out about, not a secret that you have to go through stages. You go through this stage, go through this stage, you go through that stage. You finally get into the secret chamber. They've found places in Asia Minor where at a certain time, the initiates could get into a chamber and the light of the sun would come through a certain spot and they'd find their enlightenment. They did it right. This, this isn't like that. It's what God has done and it's public truth. So let's go to verse 2. 
In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. This is, the profundity of this really weighs heavily upon me because I think back of my early days as a Christian when I was apprehended by God by his grace in 1971. I think of the different groups I've been a part of, different meetings I've had with people over the decades. And this term managers, I chose this translation because stewards has become so common that we don't think about what it means. Let me give you an example. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, in churches, have you ever heard of Stewardship Sunday? What is Stewardship Sunday? We need more money. We would like to have a building project. We would like to do this and that. So we're going to have Stewardship Sunday, and we got to get people to come because we're going to take up a big offering to make progress on a project. That is not what the Bible means by stewardship. And as I've studied this and right recently been rereading my church history books, we've got it wrong. Why can't the Bible define for us what the mystery of God is, what stewardship is, what the gospel is, and what the church is. It's right here, but we can't see it because we're looking through the lens of church history rather than what it says in Scripture. Why would, be, why would it be stewardship to build a massive cathedral? And if you look at various cathedrals as you travel... They're usually huge, stained glass windows, spires, and everything points everywhere but to the preacher preaching the gospel. It's not the preacher, it's the gospel. And I've been in places where it was so ornate, so much like that, that it would be impossible to listen to the gospel. In fact, when uh, in 83 I was in Israel, they took us to a cathedral like that that echoed. So you go in there and you clap and echo, echo, echo. One thing you can be sure of, if there was a preacher preaching Christ, you would never hear a word of it. Because it just echoes all over the place. Now why? What's that got to do with anything? Because the, those who built the cathedral do not believe that Christ crucified needs to be heard that the gospel needs to be clear, that we're not stewardship stewards of massive buildings. We're stewards of the gospel. And if they can't hear it in the common vernacular, it's worthless. I'm not saying humans aren't allowed to have nice architecture. I'm not saying it's wrong to go Look at the arch in St. Louis. When we were kids, we got in the, my dad took us in the three-seated station wagon. We saw different things. But is that the church? They don't claim that it is. The point is we need to get the gospel out. 
God appointed his ministers to be managers or stewards of the gospel and his flock. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And so it seems rather bold to say that church history is filled with error, confusion, and false definitions. But in fact, it's clearly the case. I was rereading a book I bought when I was in Bible college in the early 70s. And this last week while I was waiting in a waiting room, I was reading a chapter where they began in England to translate the Bible into English and how the organized church martyred people for translating the Bible so people could hear it. Now, why did the institutional church see the Bible as a threat to their power? Because they had seated themselves, created their institution, all the money, all the structures, kept uh, a lock on the way to salvation. You've got to go through us and do what we say or you don't get to the mystery of God. And some decided, by God's grace, no. What about the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer? Why can't we tell people what the Bible says, explain it to them, they can hear it in their language, and if they believe it, they will be priests to God without having to go through something that's designed to keep people out unless they kowtow to the hierarchy of the religious organization. How can that be? And how how can it be that seeing that other groups eventually create the same kind of thing? Hierarchies beyond anything in the Bible and no longer stewards of the mysteries of God being the gospel in terms of the new covenant. I'm going to make a statement I put in my notes. The faithfulness of God's managers, oikonomoi, excuse me, oikonomois, which is plural. I have it up there in the previous slide. The managers, the stewards, is grounded in the faithfulness of God who called us. God is faithful to give us the gospel and access to the mysteries of God, salvation, forgiveness of sins, transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness into the son of his love. One Colossians, excuse me, 1, 13 and 14. I cited Acts 26. And dear ones, that's a precious thing. We are liberty to preach the gospel in whatever building we may be in. But the fact is, even if we don't have a building, the gospel isn't bound. We can gather anywhere around God's word and learn and grow. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful. Look at that word, faithful. God is faithful. The word there is applied to stewards in some of the parables of Jesus. I'll point out one of those in our applications. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, 
Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about this. For many, many, many centuries, people called into fellowship with the Lord through the gospel were not allowed to know that their sins are forgiven without paying for it. We're not allowed to believe they had access to the throne of grace without going through religious authorities, prelates, powers, saying, you do it our way, and you pay us, and you give us honor, and you put us in fancy garb, otherwise you don't get to God. Do you see how wicked that is? And as I reread this book called The Torch of the Testimony, a little book I bought in the early 70s, I thought, this is unbelievable. I appreciate the providence of God that these are the verses and this is what I'm reading about. Why would you want somebody dead whose sin was to take the scriptures and translate them into the languages of people so they know what God said? But that's what happened. One case, they didn't get a chance to kill the guy, so they dug up his dug up his uh, ashes where he'd been burned later, did something with that. We hate this, say the powers that be in the religious world. But that's why Paul sees danger here. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. No, regard us, he says, this way. We're managers. We're servants. We're under rowers. We're managers of the mysteries of God. And if we proclaim how anybody, any one, no matter how lowly, how hurting, how badly our lives may have gone, how badly we may have lived, we, ordinary people, can believe the promises of God as God preaches it and convicts our heart and have access to God, forgiveness of sins. And those thus redeemed are not to be held as some extraordinary religious prelate that we need to show honor to them over other Christians. So there is our blessing, our hope, and our joy, the authority of Scripture, the priest of every believer. If you want to turn here, 2 Corinthians 10.10. We were talking about that. Someone, I think, alluded to this in Sunday school, or I talked with someone who brought this up. 2 Corinthians 10.10. If you have your Bible, I'll read it to you, to all of us, if you don't have it. What was going on was that the Corinthians had determined that Paul was rather uh, unspiritual and unimpressive compared to some other preacher. And Paul didn't defend himself by saying, oh, I'm the greatest. He defended himself by saying, You can't make these judgments about anybody. God's the judge. 2 Corinthians 10.10. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Unquote. So Paul 
We're tired of you. Let's get a Powell's. He's a great one with rhetoric. But what they didn't understand is the gospel is the gospel, no matter who it is, that preaches it to you. We're making judgments about things we can't know. And next week I'll show you from 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, that only God can make these judgments. He does so on the day in which he returns. And why is God the only one who can judge his own servants? Because he knows the thoughts and motives of the heart. You can fool people, especially now with everything that's available through media. It's not that hard to make someone look very impressive. They're not saying we shouldn't look our best, but the point is the issue is the message. Now, if this apostle to whom Jesus appeared, his byline by the Corinthians was, yeah, he writes good, but look at him. Maybe he had an editor. Well, he probably did. Luke was with him. But it's the word of God that's important. Now, to be found faithful implies by the master who appointed them in the future day when he comes. We'll see that in verse 5. Here is the kicker. I'll give you this before we go to the applications. Because we don't see the master, he reigns at the right hand of God. He hears us. He intercedes for us. It's easier to fool people. And many times the Christian religion has been used to exalt people who don't even preach the gospel, to put titles and garb on people to make them look impressive. And since the master hasn't yet returned, we can't make the proper judgment. So what can we judge? Is the person, whether it's an evangelist or any one of us sharing in whatever way we do, sharing the truth about the person and work of Christ, caring for the people that are the Lord's people that he cares for. Only God can change our hearts or change our motives. And there will indeed be accountability. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 3, the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Now let's have some applications We must not allow popular expectations to determine how we regard Christian ministry. That's my first point. Secondly, the terms of faithful stewardship are revealed in Scripture. And third, we must take seriously the Lord's eschatological promises and warnings. We've got to take them seriously. Eschatological means having to do with the end times. Will the Lord return and will he do what he said? Let's look at some other passages in which the same topic comes up. One, excuse me, Colossians 1, 25 through 26. 
Paul again speaking about his own ministry. By the way, Paul was Saul of Tarsus, was had heard Stephen preach, showing that from the scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus was the promised Messiah. And when Saul heard this, he became enraged and was threatening to kill preachers, Christians, breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. What happened to Saul of Tarsus? Confronted by the Lord himself, and he ends up becoming an apostle. So with that background, um, excuse me, Colossians 1, 25 and 26, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. There is a very clear and succinct definition of being a steward of the mystery of God. Now, it's easy for us to think, well, we're pretty ordinary people and we're evangelical, so the high church thing really doesn't apply. We're not Roman Catholic. We're not Eastern Orthodox. We don't have a massive organization. But what we find is that what started as a work of the gospel throughout church history here and there ends up being bigger and bigger, translocal, and pretty soon even the gospel-centered ministry becomes a massive hierarchy. World headquarters, huge uh, budgets, brick and mortar. As I first met Eric, I said, we keep losing the brick and mortar. And everything that would take to run this massive thing, And within a few generations, it's almost impossible to find the gospel there. Here is, go to the headquarters. Here's the headquarters. So what are we interested in at the world headquarters of our particular denomination? Well, we're going to be such that we're going to rule over pronouns. I kid you not, and that's not new. When I went to seminary in the 90s, we were told the pronouns had to be a certain way or we'd get an F on the paper. But at that point, there was a pretty easy way around, and I wanted education. I got a good one. But now it's even more egregious. Well, why don't we be more like the world? Why don't we be like this? Why don't we be like that? Dear ones, we need to get back to the simplicity of the faith, the truth of the gospel, the reality, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God working through his way, through the word of God, which we love and believe, and we pray for one another, and we bring evangelism, And we don't have to have a massive superstructure organization to try to take care of that usually 
will take more time, more resources, more energy, more fundraising than simply gathering and preaching the Word of God. That's happened again and again and again. And eventually, the group that has so much superstructure and organization will say, you can't preach the gospel here. We forbid it. It happens all the time. And I've heard from people that happened to them. Berean so-and-so church. But the Bereans get kicked out. Because they go to the pastor, say, we want to hear the word of God. We want the Bible taught. We want to hear about eschatological matters, that Christ is coming and we need to be ready. No, you can't come here. You'd be happier somewhere else. Well, where's somewhere else? Somewhere else all went purpose-driven too, or immersion or whatever. This is simpler than building this massive thing through Stewardship Sunday. A minister, according to Stewardship from God, was given to Paul and the other apostles, we have it in our scriptures, to make the word of God fully known. Dear ones, if we make the word of God fully known by clear preaching and teaching, explaining things, putting it in terms that come from the Bible, but that we can understand, God will use that to sanctify the saints, save the lost, and bring honor and glory to his own name. And that's the stewardship. Mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed to his saints. The saints, by the way, are people who know Christ. They're not somebody who has their number retired at Yankee Stadium. I I don't know why I thought of that one. There may be saints that have that category. I don't know. But it isn't. You got a bronze plaque on a big building. It's that you know Christ. Fully known. Carried out. Why would we get tired of preaching the Bible and think, I want something more practical? I've heard that one. When are you going to preach on something practical? So, since when is forgiveness of sins not practical? Why do we want to revolt against spiritual truth coming from the Bible? Because it seems, it seems to us that getting Rebellious teenagers under control is more practical than forgiveness of sins. It does. It really seems that way. I remember what that can be like. But we have to keep our eyes focused on what this is. It's a stewardship of the gospel. When the Lord returns and we have to give account for stewardship, is he going to say, okay, how did you deal with your teenagers? No. How did you deal with the mysteries of God, the forgiveness of sins? These other things are not wanting to belittle the difficulties of raising families. More than one way to do things in that regard, depending on the family, but we need to get the stewardship of the gospel. Colossians 127. To them, that is the saints we just talked about, God chose to make known how great 
among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Excuse me. Now, this is very important. We have to define terms. If we just simply say Christ in you in the milieu of our present time, we're not saying a lot, although we are, but people won't get it that way. Uh, There's churches out there that say Spirit of Christ. But what they mean is panentheism. God is in everything. We're the Christ church. But some mean Christ consciousness. What is that about? Christ is in, they claim, Christ is in everybody. And we've got to go into a meditative state and get down into our true self and discover Christ. That is not what this means. Not at all. But so many people believe that, that they they just gloss, excuse me, all that work, you get it lined up and I whack it. They just glaze over. You need Christ. Well, maybe I should go to India and do the work to meditate. Dear ones, Christ in you, the hope of glory means we've turned to him. We believe the gospel. We've Come to Christ on his terms. Christ, the creator of the universe. John 1, 1 through 18. Christ, the second person of the Trinity who came into our world and was born of a virgin, did many works to prove his uniqueness, the sinless one, the eternal one, the incarnate son of God, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, who died on a cross of cruel Tortuous death in order to pay the price for sins once for all. And he vindicated all of his claims through his resurrection and his bodily appearance raised from the dead to many witnesses. This isn't a blind faith religion. It's cold sober truth. Paul said that if Christ isn't raised, our faith is worthless. The Bible doesn't say all religion is good, just choose one and be a better person. This is an exclusive claim. If we haven't believed on Christ, trusted him alone, as Saul of Tarsus did, then this hope of glory is false because we're hoping in our own selves. This means Christ it dwells those by his spirit who have turned to him. I'll make a couple of comments and I'll, I want to share what he expects of us. This eschatological, that's a big term for end times, including future judgment. The eschatological glory is our hope. And this hope is grounded in the promises of God. Because the reality is yet future Many are tempted by other versions of riches or mystery or even false anointed ones. That's what the word Christ means, anointed one. But in the context, it's not what it's about. 
Earlier in Colossians, Paul said, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's from Colossians 1, 21, 22. If you have not yet believed on Jesus Christ, who died for sins once for all, today turn to him. What does that mean? Forgiveness of sins, relationship with him, and an inheritance that he's promised. He didn't promise that we're going to be better off than everybody else on the earth now, but release from sins. Today, what is the call, the universal call? Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from the Christ consciousness or whatever we're trusting in and believe in the true Christ who died for sins and ascended to heaven and is coming again. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus. Now, let's look at a couple more verses. Colossians 1, 28 29. This is what we're called to do. And that is really the key test. The one that helps us know what's the true work of God. Let me read this. Colossians 1, 28, 29 from the ESV. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's Paul's statement. Now, how do we know what stewardship looks like? Proclaiming Christ, teaching the word of God, caring about the well-being of everyone and that knows him, and knowing that God uses these means to cause us to be complete in Christ. And this isn't optional. That's the other thing that I've noticed, talking to different elders and pastors over the years in different groups. I hosted a pastor's meeting one time. It seems that evangelicalism has gotten the idea that this sort of thing is one option, but there are a lot of other ones. It's not an option. Why? Because what are the other ones? Well, take an oath, pledge to do works, go through a process, find out your gift, find out your neogram number. Uh, there's all these things out there. Go to this and that. Listen, it's not optional. Preach the word. Let me quote 2 Timothy 4 2. Preach the word. Be ready. In season, out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and teaching. For when for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Let me stop right there. 2 Timothy 4 3. Okay, so you go to the seminar on church growth so you can have your big stewardship Sunday, and you find out that we live in a society that doesn't tolerate sound doctrine, including church society. 
So, since you want to be market sensitive, you better shift gears or not. Do you see what's going on? If we allow the exigency, I don't even know if that's a word came to me and I can't even pronounce it. The priorities of the pagan culture to determine what we do will never preach sound doctrine. It's like politicians doing a poll to find out what people might vote for. How many of you in such and so area want to go and hear sound doctrine? No. I think that's in the back of our hymnal. I haven't looked there, but I think so. No. This is a command. It's imperative. Preach the word. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. How many of you know an itch to hear what you want to hear is not likely to sanctify you? How many of you know that if you don't know Christ, an itch to hear what you want to hear won't save you? Because the pagan society already knows what it wants, but God has offered something different. Forgiveness of sins and sanctification. Thus we know the basis of true stewardship. Christian ministers must preach Christ and teach the word of God to his flock. Some say that's optional. I say this is not optional. We must preach the word. We must teach the Bible. And there are plenty of other important matters, caring for one another, feeding people who need help. And these things happen in the book of Acts. But if we don't preach the word, teach sound doctrine, then we're no better than any other help group out there, even if they don't care about Christ. But that's not what God called us to. Now, two more verses as we come to close. In the next week, I'll point out this. The false judgment comes from not waiting until the Lord returns when he will make the judgment. Luke 12, 42, 43. Now, I, I was thinking about this when I was studying these verses. The word for the household manager is used often in Luke for a parable, and Jesus is pointing it out that someone goes on a trip. There's another one in Luke 16. There's several of them. And here, you're in charge. I'm going to go away. When I come back, I'm going to see how you did. And so some of them don't do it so well. That's analogous to Christ ascending to heaven. He's going to come back. What do we do in the meantime? Well, we don't want to act like teenagers whose parents went away and left them in charge for the first time. Now, we laugh because that at one time may have been us. But we want to be faithful. 
And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? Oikonomos, or, by the way, oikos is simply house. So it's the manager of a household with various duties. Who is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. What do you think about that? What if the manager comes home earlier than you thought? Well, I was just doing what I wanted to do. It's not good. It says in Luke um, 12, 45, and 46, this is our last slide. But if that servant, we go to that slide, yeah. If that servant says to himself, my master is delaying in coming, begins to beat the male, female servants, to eat and get and drink and get drunk, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. A peace toss there. Well, those are red letters, but the red letter Christians don't often cite them. Why? Red, by the way, they're not really red. They are in a lot of Bibles. Some Bibles have the words of Jesus in red. And the emergent book, I wrote about that, but the emergent movement says we're red-letter Christians, but they don't believe there's any future judgment. So don't be uh, fooled by that. Here's what we learn. If we reject what is revealed about being faithful servants of Christ and make up our own criteria, we cannot expect to be commended by the Lord on the day of accounting. It's that simple. Any Christian preacher, minister, elder, steward, we don't get to make up our own criteria. The Lord said, preach the word. The Lord said, teach sound doctrine. Yes, and the Lord said to care for one another, pray for one another, and be faithful. And that's what stewardship looks like. The day of reckoning reckoning is future. I'll talk about that next week. But we know the terms. We know the criteria. Let's ask God to help us live that way and not get sidetracked by being popular with our peers out there in the religious world. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to allow us to see these things, which your word says angels desire to look into. May we be faithful managers. And, Lord, we pray that if there's anyone who hasn't yet believed on you, that today would be the day of salvation. And may we be ones who honor you and serve with humility, knowing that without your grace and help, 
will fail every time. Help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.